You are listening to the Plan B podcast. Good evening and welcome to the Plan B podcast. I'm your host, S.V. Bortman, and I'm joined by Tian Alberts. We've got a very special guest uh, for our second episode, Chris Becker. Tian, um, why don't you start by maybe just telling the listeners a little bit about Chris? Yeah, Chris is a blockchain lead at Investec. Uh, he's been very profoundly involved with Bitcoin and crypto in general uh, in the last few years. And uh, he's probably one of the you know uh, foremost crypto thinkers, uh, certainly on social media in South Africa at the moment, but in general, I think uh, this is a guy that you want in your studio. Definitely. I, I learned so much. He definitely, definitely changed my perspective and challenged a bit of um, you know, my views with regards to how to position yourself to, to benefit from the current, you know, Bitcoin and, and crypto cycle. Um, he's very bullish Ethereum, very bullish on DeFi, um, which maybe, maybe uh, you know, changed a bit of my, uh, you know, pre-disposition um, towards maybe just uh, liking just Bitcoin. Um, he, uh, he definitely brought another perspective with regards to especially Ethereum and DeFi, which made me um, kind of change my mind a little bit. Yeah, and uh, it's difficult not to. I mean, it's very compelling. We went a lot into the use cases of, of Ethereum and uh, what is going on there at the moment. Uh, and, uh, you know, all the, all the uh, protocols being built on Web3. Uh, it's really interesting stuff. And uh, as he said, I think he said it very eloquently, uh, the moment he snapped exactly what this is all about he decided to spend the rest of his life working on this full time um so yeah a massive privilege to have this guy in our studio uh who we also happen to find out uh lives right next door to us <laughs> yeah that was quite quite good so i mean stay tuned for probably a lot more episodes coming with uh with chris because he's so so close um yeah i really enjoyed it i think there's a lot to learn in the, in this episode um i can't wait for for everyone to get into it Chris, uh, thank you for joining us. Thanks, guys. Good to be here. Yeah, it's an exciting time. Um, I'm also here with uh, Sphere Bortma. Um, yeah, and we would like to discuss, you know, something that's been on, I think, especially in South Africa, on a lot of people's tongues lately. Uh, not everyone exactly knows what it's all about and what the buzz is about. Um, we've been seeing the regulator making some, some, uh, you know. Uh, paying attention to, to cryptocurrencies. Um, but I think the general public is still, um, you know, in the dark side uh, about this. Uh, I think you're in a special position to, to discuss this with us. Um, so I think let's just kick it off um, with like a type of a general question is uh, uh, why crypto? <laughs> that's, a, that's a very general question. Yeah. Crypto is a big, is a big category. Um, and I don't like to talk about the category that broadly. I like to get a bit more specific. But um, so when I think about crypto, uh, I really think about two blockchains, really, uh, and that's Bitcoin and Ethereum, and the applications that could, can get built on top of those. Um, when you think about, um, crypto, uh, I think what's going on so. So um, those are the two categories to me. The one On the one side, you've got Bitcoin, which is designed as this technology that's a scarce digital asset and monetary network. And on the other side, you can use the blockchain technology to build applications on top of it, and that's mostly what Ethereum's used for. 
I think why it's important and why it's it's piquing people's interest and getting people excited is because you've got this monetary technology and system that runs on the internet. It's born of the internet. Um, it 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 unshackles itself from the state. And I think if you look at what's going on in the world right now, a lot of people are concerned about the state of governance around the world, and that's why you're getting a lot of political tensions in places like America. People are concerned about the dynamics in South Africa, and we're seeing a move of, of you know movement of people out of the country again, especially in the middle classes and wealth being externalized and all this type of stuff. It's not a it's not a thing that's unique to SA. I think there's a lot of concern around the world with what's going on. The monetary system that we're in is reached a point where it's become fragile in a sense. We, we've come from 2008-9, had a global this financial crisis that almost sunk the U.S. banking system. Mm-hmm. Huge bailouts were requirements required to keep the system stable. And then if you rewind to March 2020, for example, COVID shock, once again, plunge protection team had to come in, which is the government and central banks, to stabilize the system. Um, and then on top of that, you've obviously got this, this this massive debt that's been accumulating over the last several decades. And when you look at the state of government debts around the world, you just kind of wonder to yourself, how is this going to play out? What does this mean for for my wealth? Very closely tied to you know, these fiat currencies and the credit systems, government bonds, for example, are seen as these uh, risk-free assets where interest rates are now negative and you're getting paid to lend money to governments or put them in the bank in at least the you know developed countries. And I know because I used to do I was a macro strategist and I did research for you know large asset managers around the world. And everybody knows is a problem. And it they don't know how it's gonna fix and resolve itself. And you can get very depressed when you get too tied up into how the scenario unfolds. You know, and you read books by Reinhardt and Rogoff, and this time is different, and our debt crises play out. It's it's not very it's it doesn't look very pretty. It's not very exciting. It's very easy to get very negative about the future. But then you start to learn about these new technology systems like Bitcoin, um, Ethereum, and some of the other innovation that's happening in the tail of crypto. You know, in the crypto space, there's a huge tail with many different types of projects trying to compete with these things. Mm-hmm. And you start to realize, well, actually, this is super exciting because a new system is being built from the ground up, so to speak. A new technology stack uh, for money and banking and financial services is being built. And you have the opportunity to kind of reimagine and redesign certain things and do it more efficiently than how it works right now. And I think that's why it kind of intrigues people. It's why it gets people excited and I think that's why you're seeing some of the bigger institutional investors getting involved in this space. They really are starting to understand that this, this is where the puck is going. Yeah. Mm. Um, so I've said a lot there, you know. Yeah, it's, a, it's a great intro. I think it sets yeah. us up quite, quite nicely for um, a, a lot of talking points that, that, that we've been wanting to discuss. I think the last one you touched on there, um, institutional interest, is especially one that I'm wondering about. As a South African, I see institutions in the U.S. getting involved um, Tesla, MicroStrategy, MassMutual. Um, I see big guys like Stan Druckenmiller, um, Larry Fink, you know, big guys that, that, that are getting involved and saying this is not something we want to ignore. Uh, 
but in South Africa, uh, uh, that's not something I've really seen. Uh, big asset managers seem to be wary at, at, at best and, uh, uh, you know, sometimes even just dismissive. Uh, um, banks uh, are recently starting to change their tune a little bit. Um, you know, Joxel here of, of F&B, for example, um, has, has kind of s- dropped his, his, his crypto hate recently. Uh, but but guys have been very um, skeptical and dismissive in in, in recent years. I'm I'm wondering um, how are you seeing that you know evolve in the last twelve months, um, and you know why do you think S- South Africa is so lags so much behind the US in terms of institutional adoption? Yeah, look, I think that's a. It's it's very interesting, and I've, I've I've you know I've obviously thought about it a lot, and I think it comes down to levels of freedom and the ability to be innovative and entrepreneurial, and I think uh, a nation like America, you'll see the innovators and the entrepreneurs leading, and they lead boldly and strongly into you know certain directions, um, whereas in SA it doesn't seem to happen in the same way. There's a lot more validation that happens with government and with regulators to say, are you happy that we do this before actually moving moving forward? And um, I mean, it, it could be a consequence of, of many things, but I think the nature of the, the national party apartheid government regime was very top-down controlling. And I think that type of culture remains an essay. We haven't really shaken that, is my sense. And so much smaller markets, um, stronger top-down control. Um, you know, as an economist, I think my sense is that that control is is increasing also at the moment through through what the country's been going through in the last few years, and especially with lockdown. Um, and so it's so it's kind of hard to see see us being real leaders at a corporate and institutional level in the space. But definitely what I am seeing is the local corporates and institutions are paying attention to what the guys in America and in Europe are doing. Um, that's that's definitely happening. So so people are paying attention. The other thing I'd say is institutions, in SA, in asset managers, for example, um, uh, I'd be surprised if they weren't quite bullish on these crypto assets like Bitcoin and Ether in their personal capacities and mm-hmm. in their personal accounts, they're long. Um, but you don't have the regulatory environment and the, and the structures in order to put it into a fund yet in SA. Um, and then the other thing I'll say is if you, you look at some of these these hedge funds, for example, that would have Bitcoin on their balance sheet, mm-hmm. they'd be using offshore custodians and uh, brokers and market makers in order to, to execute those trades and express those views. Because it's just not happening locally. Right. So in a sense, we're kind of losing out locally, mm. you know. Um, so yeah, and I think that kind of brings back to an earlier question. The first question, Tian, is like, why, why, why crypto again? Is innovation, innovation and competition in the world of money? Mm. You haven't. You've had competition in money. Uh, between nation states, between countries. So in the sense that the dollar competes for the renminbi and the yen and the euro and the rand, and some do really well because they're 
policies are better and governance around the currency units better and the economy might be performing, you know, so there's more demand for that units of exchange. Um, but you've never really seen internal competition for a monetary unit. Um, but what's interesting about these, these you know, cryptos like Bitcoin is that it's, it's, there's a lot of innovation happening within the space to see which becomes the dominant new private money, which I think is super important that we have private forms of money that acts as backstops to possible failures of government monies, which obviously happens and it's devastating to countries like Zim and Venezuela. Um, but also this competition can happen around the, uh, around the world. And these networks are open. You know, so so anyone can innovate and deploy code on Bitcoin or on Ethereum, build on top of it. It doesn't matter if you're working for a bank or not. Now, think about the traditional system. You've got a great idea. You're sitting in Soweto. You want to code up this thing. You've coded it up. How are you going to deploy it into a bank, a bank's technology systems? You've got to get a job at a bank firstly. You've got to spend several years at a bank to build up the confidence and trust in governance inside the bank in order to get to the point where you could possibly even think about like launching a product. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's not anyone who can just launch a product for a bank. Hugely cumbersome, expensive, time-consuming process. The open innovation on these, these protocols means you don't need to ask anyone for permission. Like you can, if you've got an idea, you launch it like you launch a website, you distribute it to people. They, any, anywhere in the world, they have a connection to the internet and Ethereum or Bitcoin. They can consume the product and so I think that's super important for the world that we see real innovation mm. happening in and the world of money and banking. And the, the best part about that is it's all based on merit. So if, if you write bad code, it's just not going to get anywhere. But if you, write, if you write a good program, build a good application on top of it, it's going to get traction. Yeah, it's like it's, it's, uh, there's this guy, Andre Cronier, yes. lives in the Cape. And he's a developer. And early last year, he... He was basically managing his own stablecoin portfolio on different decentralized finance, DeFi applications on Ethereum. And he built a smart contract that would programmatically allocate his capital towards the best yield opportunities. Mm. And he put it on Ethereum and he was managing his and like family's money, you know, just like that with this programmatic, kind of like a hedge fund that just automatically like generates the best yields and searches for the best opportunities. But obviously, he had to deploy that code onto Ethereum. And because it's open source, everybody could assess it and analyze it. And people were reading the code in America, Japan, wherever, and they were like, this is great code. We're going to start putting some capital to work through this like, smart contract. And suddenly, the thing had hundreds of millions of dollars in value locked up in it. And Andre was like, whoa, this is actually too big for me, and I don't want to take care of a lot of the headaches. So he launched a governance token known as Wi-Fi, Wi-Fi token. Mm-hmm. And basically distributed it to all users of the smart contract. And everybody who had the token, who had used it, suddenly became almost like shareholders in this, this decentralized organization. And um, so coming back to your point on like, yeah, this, these, this code's open. And what's so cool is um, he's deployed that smart contract. Um, you can now build a smart contract that communicates with that smart contract, you know. And so you get these, these this cross collaboration without having to ask for permission to right. consume somebody else's API, yeah. you know. So if you think about fintech and banking, a fintech company needs to ask a bank, say, "Hey, can I consume your APIs in order to build this interesting application or innovation on top of your deposits, top of your bank deposits, you know, mm-hmm. on top of your customers' information, essentially." 
Um, and, a, and a bank can say no for a bunch of reasons. And it's mostly got to do with data sharing and privacy and security and all this type of stuff, as well as regulations, of course. The National Payment System Act puts certain regulations and who can do what. Ethereum, Bitcoin, you can build, deploy and deploy you know, code and, and distribute that service to people no matter where they are in the world and offer value. And if it offers value, like, you know, you're going to do, you're going to do well. So that's super, obviously super exciting. Yeah. And, and you've likened it world. in a sense to, to the advent of the internet. Um, I think rightly so. Um, but obviously, uh, back, back in the day when the internet, uh, was launched, uh, it was very much in line with, uh, all, all the spirits surrounding the launch of the internet was very much in line with the democratization that happened all around the world and the free flow of information that was being promoted. So it, it was it was in keeping with, with the times, right? Um, what I'm concerned about is is uh, what the, the Web3 applications and, and cryptocurrencies um, won't be seen in the same way. Uh, so it obviously comes with some ramifications. It has implications for the extent to which regulators can keep a finger on the pulse uh so where do you think we are with that in south africa um and uh what are the things to watch out for i just want to apologize to everyone listening about the noisiness of my whiskey (laughs) (laughs) ice blocks rattling around yeah i think i think the podcast sounds so much more fun right now after that yeah it's all all good (laughs) but thanks it's delicious so glad um, you like it so to your question, um, is it going to be as open as the early internet was uh, in terms of the, the innovation because these are seen are as, as financial services and products and assets? Will the regulators bear down on it and, and make it harder to innovate? I think, I think it's extremely hard. I think... Anyone can sit anywhere and um, essentially hide, hide who they are on the web and build and deploy this code. Um, what's, what's been really fascinating to me in the last you know, two years, because this wasn't as prevalent in 2016, 17, but if you look at crypto Twitter and some of the prominent names there, um, especially in the space, the DeFi space, mm. Um, you know, people pay attention to memes, you know. Uh, their, their handles like chainlinkgod.eth or chainlinkgod, you know. And the picture, the profile picture is a frog, like a little, I think it's a, one of these peppy frogs or something. Yeah. <laughs> or Dgen Spartan. And there's a bunch of these people. And when you read their stuff, these, these guys are extremely smart. You don't actually know who they are. A lot of these guys are obviously building products and participating in governance for these new, these new systems. And so I think it's really hard to kind of clamp down just because of this global decentralized nature of the system. So, um, and I think because the opportunity to, to create value and to monetize that value is, is so much larger than the early internet in a sense. Mm. Um, you're seeing more brains going into the space. Um, and so, yeah, I think to kind of answer your question, no, I don't think I, I think it's the same thing as going on. It's, mm. But but it's it, it might might be more intense because 
you can own a piece of this internet and they're really uh, good ways to kind of monetize the value that you add to the space early on. Whereas the early internet, in the 60s, when the DARPA net was being spun up between different universities in America and the Department of Defense basically owned it and said we need to build this decentralized communications network to be able to counter Russia if we had some kind of a uh, like information warfare. You know? um, it was very hard to monetize that early internet. You know? It only started really getting monetized in the 90s where guys really started making money off of it. And I guess companies like Cisco Networks who were installing the hardware and the ethernet cables and the, the, the networking stuff in the 80s did well. Now you can kind of get involved and if you've got good ideas, you can monetize it. And, and so I think... Those incentives are there to ensure that the open innovation will take place and perhaps be bigger. I, th I think then th the question that comes to mind is uh, we can all agree then that this revolution kind of seems unstoppable, the decentralized revolution. Um, what I'm wondering about is to what extent regulators will try and step in, um, to, what, to, what, to what extent they will try and attempt to, 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 you know, to, to, to clamp down and um, how successful they will be. And then in that, do you think they just manage to slow it down a little bit? Or do you think they, the regulators still have the ability to, to clamp down on you know, some, some aspects of, of DeFi, you know, private money, Bitcoin, Ether? Yeah, look, I think the way, the way it looks to be going is that the lack of clarity... Um, in the traditional kind of regulatory environment is essentially driving people into crypto innovation proper, where it almost doesn't even interact with the traditional system. So it incentivizes people to detach <laughs> and build and build a completely new parallel system. Um, so that's that's one thing that's happening. And I think we're in an era... When I, you know, when I was really sort of um, trying to get my head around this stuff in 2016, because I'd kind of, you know, I didn't, I didn't pay enough attention when I first learned about Bitcoin in you know, 2011, 12, 2013, um, paid attention again, tried to buy some Bitcoin, but at that time there were no special purpose like these SPV wallets, no special. Oh, that's another acronym for, <laughs> for <laughs> special purpose vehicle. SPV, these lightweight Bitcoin wallets that you can have on your mobile device, they also didn't exist in 2013. And I was looking at this asset and I was going, no, this isn't going to work because you've got to run a full node. That's a mission. Most people don't want to do that. All sorts of risks around that. Wife doesn't want to have another computer there that's like dedicated to this, you know, all this kind of stuff. Yeah, mining and all this stuff. And I was like, whoa. So... And then I was looking at how do you actually buy it? You know, there were no, Bitex, I think only maybe just started or probably hadn't because I would have then tried to sign up with Bitex. Just, um, um, just before our listeners, Bitex was Luno's previous name, right? Yes, yeah. They rebranded to Luno, I don't know how long ago, but 2017 or something. So it was Bitex up until then. And, um, they weren't around yet, so you had to like find a guy. If you didn't want to mine to create your own, generate your own bitcoins, you had to find some guy somewhere who would sell it to you. 
And then the settlement risk was high. Like, you know, you'd pay some guy on eBay to send you Bitcoins. You had to run a full node um, to receive the Bitcoins. And then you had to hope that, like, your money is going to get to this guy in America and you can trust him and he's reliable, for example. You know? yeah. Or whoever this guy is in SA because there was no local Bitcoins yet either, you know. And so I thought to myself, no, nah, this, this, this stuff's not going to work. You know, this isn't going to work. Gold, I think gold's going to, the system might reset back to gold and, you know, I obviously kept staying in touch with it and kept learning about it. And um, uh, where did we start this bit? I'm kind of just talking now. I'm not sure where I'm going. <laughs> but, um, oh, oh, okay. I remember where I, why I was giving this context. So so I kept, stayed in touch with it. And then in 20, 2015, 16, I realized, okay, I th maybe I'm making a big mistake. I need to pay more attention because the space had evolved, you know, like, was it was far less friction and trying to buy bitcoins and transacting it and you could have these lightweight wallets on your device on your phone and stuff didn't have to run a full node to do a transaction you know all this kind of stuff and i thought okay let me pay attention because i was also getting quite concerned about the global macro environment and i started doing more research on on big um, geopolitical kind of macro trends and um, i was reading i read this book called the fourth turning and it was fascinating because theory in the fourth turning is that there's this 80-year pattern and cycle that repeats throughout history. And so to like illustrate, um, in, in um, 1776 in America, it was the War of Independence. And then 80 years later, it was the Civil War. Okay. okay? 1850s started. Yeah. And then 80 years later is the Great Depression, World War II era. And then 80 years later, these guys published this book in 99. Eh? And they were like, starting in the early 2000s, there's going to be a great event that triggers like a cataclysmic, big economic shock. And it's going to usher in the next fourth turning. And generally what happens in fourth turnings is major institutional and governance realignments that take place. So things change, and people fight over those changes. And, and I think that kind of can illustrate why there's so much noise and political tension all over the world. And so, so I then started realizing, well, you know, one of the areas that becomes extremely vulnerable is, is like what do we agree on in terms of what is money? You know, what is money? Which technologies do we use? How can we trust? If the right and left are becoming so far apart, how are they going to – be able to transact value with each other. Who's going to control the banking system? Are they going to trust each other? You know, all these types of big questions. And I realized that, you know, Bitcoin, Ethereum, these things have been born at a time where these things are still on their way to reaching like a real pinnacle. Like where things get really tense. And, and Bitcoin's kind of perfectly positioned to alleviate a lot of that conflict and tension around control of, let's say, the monetary system and the financial system. And it becomes this, this neutral, apolitical technology that we can all agree on the code. You know, everybody can get a view of it. Hey, hey, hey Trump can't cheat us, you know. <laughs> so, so, so the Trump and the Biden camps can kind of agree that they can transact on this because neither side can cheat the other side, you know. Wow. So it becomes like this very interesting technology in the era that we're in, in this fourth turning era. Um, and so where I'm going with this whole story is to say, I think new governance institutions are going to be born. And the way that we think about regulations right now 
will change. I think that's that's what I think is going to happen. And and to sort of talk about what that change would look like, Bitcoin is governed outside of any of the traditional regulations. Bitcoin is code. The code is the rules. It's The rules are codified. And it's a language. And, it's a, and a protocol is something that we agree on how we're going to communicate with each other, for example. So it's a, it's a strict language. And, and, if, and if you don't want to opt into those rules, you essentially get kicked out of the network. It's as simple as that. So there's very strict governance around Bitcoin. If you don't want to stick to the rules, you're out. You know, go use something else. You have to fork the code and maybe go use Bitcoin Cash, you know, where you can have a bigger block size or, you know, you can take your pick on a lot of these forks of Bitcoin. Um, and so in that sense, governance for these projects are kind of baked in and it becomes a community with its own social contract where people opt into using that system and that technology. And so I think that's partly why you're seeing many different blockchain technologies developing. You know, Bitcoin has got a very specific social contract and very specific kind of governance. Digital, scarce, asset, sound money. You know, that's what it does. And the Bitcoin is love it for that. And I love it for that because it's essential. You need to have some kind of highly secure store of value. And a digital version of gold, I think, is amazing that anyone on the planet can access. You know, and um, Ethereum's different because it tries to take what Bitcoin can do further. You know, and it pushes its limits. You know, and so that's exciting. But the Ethereum community's got a very different social contract, and so they prepare to sacrifice on security in certain instances in order to execute on a on a different vision that they would hold. And so you can see how the governance starts to become the social contract of communities where people have certain expectations of what they're trying to achieve and what the vision and the mission is, and you opt into that, and, and it's in the code. And so traditional regulators will have a different type of role, I think, in the future, um, and it'll be most likely far diminished mm. than it but, is uh, today. But you, you, speak about, you sp- spoke earlier about a, a completely parallel financial system, which you think um, you know, uh, institutions and individuals might be gravitating towards um, in the wake of uh, maybe strict uh, or the regulator thinking that they can regulate this. Um, But to what what extent do you think that is uh, currently currently feasible and feasible over the next, let's say, 10 years uh, in terms of of on-ramps and off-ramps? Look, so I think calling it parallel applies now because it's tiny compared to the traditional financial system. I mean, the whole crypto asset class is $2 trillion and we're talking about hundreds of trillions of dollars worth of value sitting in government bonds and fiat currencies and equities and real estate and all the stuff, right? And so it's tiny and parallel right now. But my, my sense is and my expectation is, and that's why I kind of put my career into this full-time in 2017, is that it becomes the dominant system in the same way that internet communications kind of supplanted and dominate post offices now and letters, you know. Um, but it's a process. So while that transition's happening, it's kind of parallel, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so the transition's still taking place. But it won't be seamless, um, obviously, no. if you speak about the diminishing of of the role of the current regulator. I mean, 
they're, they're not just going to sit back and say, hey, guys, uh, have some fun, right? Yeah, look, it's also, it's it's like extremely hard to, so you asked a, th- a question about the on-ramps. So you can you can regulate a company that's registered where their directors and shareholders and the traditional, once again, the traditional kind of governance around how you incorporate a business, the traditional system can govern and, and control those individuals and those entities. So the on-ramps, for example, are mostly businesses like this. And so that's where the focus of regulation is. It's like humans interacting with this tech. But where you start to move into the, the purely new models of governance, there's no one to call. There's no one to really govern. How do you stop it? And, and as a South African regulatory entity or as an American, how do you do? How do you coordinate with other uh, you know, governments around the world? Because your incentives are all different. And you all think differently about the world. I mean, some countries are obviously seeing this as a massive opportunity to them. I think it was Hungary that cut capital gains tax on Bitcoin to 10 or 0% or whatever it is. So they're seeing the opportunity to say, hey, Bitcoiners, come and like live here, set up here, take your profits in Hungary. We're not going to charge you much in the way of tax. Reinvest it locally. Build your businesses here. So it becomes really hard to coordinate and, and align centers amongst governance around the world in order to like, you know, put your stamp on it or, or mold it to your, to your, to your liking. Yeah. And, and the game theory there is, is quite interesting because you have, um, what will happen is some countries will might try and clamp down, but then you'll have complete, you know, regulatory arbitrage where countries like Hungary who think like, think in the same innovative way will open up their borders towards this new technology so it becomes this um ungovernable tech in a sense that sure it might not be legal in one jurisdiction but then you just move to another jurisdiction and the and the tricky thing is like you know when you think about the south african reserve bank and the prudential authority they regulate they regulate banks and there's other regulatory bodies the conduct authority also regulate banks FIC regulates, you know, how information is reported around certain types of transactions. And um, what was I going to say? Sorry, guys, I'm drifting tonight. Um, <laughs> it's, it's probably the whiskey. Eh? <laughs> <laughs> um, they. What was I going to say? Well, I, I think I can respond to that. In in that, um, so you speak about you know these new types of businesses being built up, which kind of makes uh, on-ramps oh. from the traditional system redundant, yeah, right? Yeah. So it's probably a question of, of adoption then. Um, yeah, what, no, what I, what I was actually going to say, I think you're right, um, but what I was going to say was you have these regulatory bodies that regulate these entities that do certain things. Now you're talking about regulating a smart contract on the internet that has API calls, that runs on this distributed technology that there's no one to find to stop it, to take something down. So so these existing kind of traditional regulatory bodies, like the Saab now, needs to think about regulating hardware, computer hardware, regulating IP addresses, regulating API calls, regulating smart contracts, regulating the internet itself, you know? And so that's so far outside of like how they think about and actually regulate, yeah. it's really hard. It's like 
It's impossible. It is impossible. And so much coordination needs to happen, not just within a country, but across borders in order to have an effective strategy to stop this. It's just, it's, it's, I mean, you know, and I, and I, get, I engage in my role with, with those regulatory bodies, you know, and um, it's very hard. It's hard. It's hard. <laughs> it's hard to stay ahead I'm of I'm very glad to hear it. And, uh, <laughs> but they, they try, they're going to try to regulate Netflix. Uh, so uh, I think maybe there's some kind of uh, uh, illusion of, of, of uh, you know, feasibility in, in terms of that. But uh, well, again, like a Netflix regulation there, it's, it's, it becomes kind of easy because there's an entity you find, say, like, like you know, you can't distribute your product here. If you do, you've got to pay taxes and VAT and you know, all that kind of mm-hmm. stuff. Um, and, um, but what we're talking about with Web3 and blockchain and all this um, you'll have this distributed computer network where information can be stored on personal devices, no matter, you know, no matter where people are, and they can earn like monetary incentives for storing that information and sharing it, almost like a BitTorrent network, with, but with economics built in. And so what that means is, is the, the type of content, content that sits on Netflix's servers which is an entity that can be regulated, is probably not going to be on an entity like that's servers in 10 years' time. There will be businesses and protocols like Filecoin and, and Ethereum that work together in order to make it economically viable for content, content to be stored and distributed to people in a manner that's unstoppable. Hmm. Yeah. You know? Um, Chris, you spoke just now about um, the, the conversations you have with, with regulators. I'm, I'm wondering, um, you know, to the extent that you can elaborate on that, what are the main critis- criticisms that you're hearing from them? You know, what are they trying to regulate? What are they trying to find out? Um, I, I think I'd be interested in hearing you know, those, about those discussions. It's mostly the focus is on consumer protections around scams. So it's not a, a top-down authoritarian clamping down on you know, these private monies just yet. Look, again, it's so small. It's so small compared to the traditional system that it's not seen as a threat. Okay. It's like a disruptive innovation to any incumbent business. It starts off, it looks like it's this tiny little thing it's not going to move the needle, so why should we pay attention to it now if our clients are not interested? But what they, what they do see, and so, so it's kind of like, ah, ready, Bitcoin, take over the rand, nah, it's not going to happen anytime soon. Mm. Not in our lifetimes, you know, that's the kind of thinking. Yeah. Maybe, maybe not, you know, um, but, but there's a big focus on, on scams, right? Like, because there are scams. Like, there are, there are, Operators, we had a, you know, we had a guy who's a builder who did some work for us recently, and he lives in Krugersdorp, and in his local community, he's been taken twice trying to invest in Bitcoin. So he says these guys will show up, and um, you know, tell a great story, and they're smartly dressed, and put money into this account, and he trusts them, and puts money in, and then poof, a little while later they're gone, disappear, yeah. vanish off the face of the earth, and so so he's very bullish. 
Bitcoin and he wants to own a piece of this exciting technology and asset, but he's been scammed twice, you know, and, and, um, and so to try and get a guy like that to even own Bitcoin is also hard. And this is where some of the challenges come in. Like he didn't have a smartphone. So he, I said to him, you're going to need a smartphone to sign up with, uh, you know, one of the better crypto exchanges. Um, didn't have an email address. Uh, I had to set him up with an email address. Like real basic kind of problems to, to you know, more sophisticated, right. you know, middle class SA. Um, and th this is where it also gets interesting around how is this technology going to benefit those people? Like there's still a lot of innovation that needs to happen to benefit the majority of people. And so that's where the scams come in. That's where a lot of these people mm -hmm. are like kind of preying on, on naive people. Um, and that's where a lot of the focus is with the Financial Sector Conduct Authority around the stuff. Like, mm -hmm. where there was MTI, Merit Trading International, which was a big, like... Algo trading type of thing now. They started off in Forex trading, and they kind of migrated into Bitcoin, and then, pff, gone, disappeared with a whole bunch of people's money. And I think that was kind of a well-known, high-profile case. But there's so much of the stuff going on out there. Mm -hmm. and, and that's really, I think, where the, the thrust of it is at the moment, is to say, how do we bring it in? Um, that's kind of been my my argument too. Why shouldn't this guy be able to just go to his bank and buy this like a foreign currency? You know, I mean, I know it's hard to buy foreign currencies, and you need to, you know, show get permission and prove that you're traveling somewhere and all this kind of stuff. Um, but like, if you want to kind of engender trust and protect people, I think that. You know, these companies need to get involved to help protect their clients, you know, essentially. But yeah, so that's where a lot of the focus from the regulators are. Okay. Yeah. It's interesting. I've, uh, uh, most regulators, high profile people, are, are kind of dismissing it as, you know, not a threat to to the dollar or to the rand, just a you know, speculative instrument. Um, I mean, even, you know, Janet Yellen, Christine Lagarde, Jerome Powell are just d dismissing it as it's like gold, speculative instrument, won't unseat the dollar, won't unseat the rand. And I guess, I mean, me reading those headlines, um, I was happy to see that because it means that they haven't properly got onto the threat yet, and it probably means that they won't have any major clampdowns on you know, trying trying to regulate it from a from that perspective. Well, look, I think it's getting interesting because uh, I'm noticing that there's a bit of a an arms race now between between the U.S. and China around this technology, and I think the Americans are starting to wake up that. China is quite advanced. They've got a lot of mining operations. They, they exchange Binance is the biggest in the world, and they're working on central bank digital currencies. And, you know, there's a bunch of stuff going on there. And the Americans are like, whoa, we might get left behind here. Mm. And I think that's why we saw Brian Brooks, who was the comptroller mm. of the currency last year, like, come out with some, some good positive guidance to banks to get involved in the space. And I think that's going to continue because now the big thing is going to be, how do you govern these systems so in bitcoin it's mining it's it's large exchanges it's it's you know people providing custodial wallets um if there's kind of a huge amount of americans involved in that side of bitcoin you start getting more influential in governance or governance around this technology on ethereum it's it's going to be the same thing but it's going to be unique soon in the sense that the way that you'll govern ethereum is by owning ETH that's staked in the Good contract for ETH2. Mm. And so what that means is um, 
you know, for people not aware of this, the way that Bitcoin transactions are validated and processed is through a process that's energy intensive, uses a lot of compute power, which uses a lot of energy, um, to, and that's effectively security. So energy consumption is converted into security for the Bitcoin network. So a lot of people will be critical of Bitcoin that it consumes so much, so much energy. What it actually means is all that energy is being translated into security. It's a very good thing if you want to store value over periods of time. It means it makes it more difficult to obviously hack, you know. Mm. Um, Ethereum's moving to a model where you need to own ETH, the native cryptocurrency for the Ethereum blockchain, and the more ETH you own essentially means the more governance power you have over the network. Mm. And a lot of the applications built on top of Ethereum have the same model. So, you know, very interesting financial services applications, basically smart contracts on Ethereum, things like Uniswap and Aave and MakerDAO um, that contain different business logic. In order to govern and manage risks of these smart contracts, you need to own the native token of the smart contract. So if you want to influence Uniswap's governance, you've got to own Uni. You need to have skin in the game. Yeah, you've got to have skin in the game. And that gives you voting power over the smart contract. And so where I'm going with this is it's not going to be long before regulators realize to govern these new systems their citizens essentially need to own it because that gives them control over the protocols. And so I think what we're going to see happening very soon is once that penny starts dropping, you'll see an encouragement from regulators to say, own these assets so that us as Americans or us as South Africans mm, are able to you know, influence the direction of the smart contract in a way that benefits us. Because they can't control the technology, they can't govern the technology. Without but they can, earning the asset, but yes. they can they can govern the individual, the person. Well, I no, I think. Look, it, it's very hard to control forty million people individually. Now, people are going to look at what happened with lockdown and think, well, actually, <laughs> it looked pretty easy. But there was a lot of stuff going on <laughs> there, right? Yeah. And people were actually, fear, I think, fearful of the virus. You know. Um, yeah, I think it's going to be harder because there's such a big spread of kind of views of the space and it's going to be very hard to control every individual and give tell them how they should be voting based on their kind of shareholder equity in a protocol. Like, I don't think that's that's going to happen. People are going to say, no, this is my money. I use this protocol. I'm going to vote according to what I think is best. But what you're going to see evolving is um, delegated governance. And so most people don't want to get involved in the nitty-gritty of like how best to run this bank on Ethereum. They're going to want to delegate their governance to somebody else. So somebody like, you know, Chris Becker is close to this stuff. He's very interested in Uniswap. He's got my best interests at heart. Let me delegate my vote to him to govern Uniswap on my behalf, so to speak. And so I think you're going to see this, this new kind of breed and, and, and 
function of governing smart contracts on behalf of people. And and again, I think governance, so governance in a sense is going to change, um, but your local government is most likely going to want local citizens to have that type of influence right. over these networks. So essentially so, what you're saying is um, governments will have to come along and play by the rules of the game um, and allow their citizens to play by the rules of the game, have the skin in the game to vote on the protocols, um, essentially not regulating it at all, allowing their citizens to regulate it according to their best interests. Exactly. Okay. I mean, going the other way and, and like banning these technologies would be like, imagine banning the internet. Right, exactly. In the early 90s. Where would you be? I mean, you're North Korea. It's like yes. blackout, you know. <laughs> yeah. um, and so, so that's going to be a very interesting game theoretic kind of, yes. uh, that's going to be very interesting to watch <laughs> over time. But I think that's where it's going. Do you, do you think there's any inclination for banks to uh, kind of gatekeep in terms of, you know, people buying these tokens, especially since, I mean, I mean registered financial institutions at the moment kind of have a monopoly on providing credit? And if there's a new kid on the block, do you think there will be any perceived threat? I mean, of course, but once again, it's tiny, you know, compared to the balance sheets that banks have, not just in SA, but around the world. And that's obviously why the addressable market for things like Ethereum and the DeFi applications on top of it are so huge. It boggles the mind, actually. Um, and I think when banks really start to take the threat seriously, these things are going to be scaling. They're going to be so efficient and slick to use that it's going to be kind of hard to compete with it. Um, so to your question of like, will banks gatekeep? I think if you look at what's going on in, in SA, in a sense, um, you know, banks aren't moving that fast with the space and there's no bank that's allowing a customer to, you know, buy Bitcoin as they would allow them to buy a dollar, you know, through their, through their Forex business. No. We're not there yet. But customers, if they want to own it, they can go somewhere else and do it. And so you're seeing people doing that. And so customers are kind of leading the way and they're forming new trust relationships with new entities in order to get involved in this, in this asset class. Um, yeah, I think it becomes, hard for, it becomes hard for banks to act as, as gatekeepers here. And if anything, I think my sense is that banks will need to be very serious about thinking differently around how they intermediate credit because what's going on is is Ethereum is developing its own balance sheet with its own business logic that intermediates credit, you know. Um, in other words, you know, people can use assets on Ethereum, deposit it into a smart contract like Aave, A-A-V-E dot com, and people should check it out, it's very interesting. And that gives them borrowing power and it gives them the ability to borrow another asset against that collateral. And so you can borrow dollars against ETH, for example. Mm. Um, and, you know, that's happening. And um, Without doing a credit check. Without with, the credit without check. going through a bank. I mean, the credit check is, do you have the collateral? Yes, he's yeah. deposited the collateral here. Like, it's here. It's in the account. It's got a dollar value. So you can borrow against it. And um, I don't think banks are fully aware of 
threat. the level of sophistication on in these DeFi applications on top of Ethereum. I mean, it's super sophisticated stuff. And um, the moment it becomes a threat, it's bigger. It's really big and scaling fast. Yeah. You know? um, so yeah. Anyway, so I think I think what we'll probably see happening is that um, you'll see banks and other financial institutions acting as intermediaries into this new type of balance sheet with business logic that doesn't sit inside their data centers, you know, for example. So, like, if you deposit money into a savings account at your bank, that's all tech that they own and control, you know. Um, yeah, you're depositing into a smart contract that, that the bank doesn't control. So it's like a big business model change, and so it's really hard to make that shift for yeah. banks right now. Mm -hmm. But there's a lot of, like, real fintech companies and just tech companies who easily make that shift because – not a threat to their existing business model and they can just get a, get their heads around this new technique of money and banking and kind of move faster. And in, in this case, it'll be a, a, you know, a pure case of innovate or die. Mm. If you're not one of the first mover banks to try and um, you know, opt into this, you'll be left behind. Yeah, I think the, the chances are quite good. Eh? <laughs> yeah, you need to be paying attention to this mm. for sure. Yeah, and I mean, Ethereum has more than 100,000 developers behind it maybe more um around the world it's it's and you quite rightly say you know it's, it's scaling very fast um but what do you make of the uh, the adoption base um of uh you know applications for instance uh people uh institutions converting their business model to to run on Ethereum, essentially, as a smart contract. I mean, there's going to be have to be, you know, a few uh, significant movers in that sense to uh, kind of spark something, some kind of uh, revolution. Uh, where are we with that at the moment? Look, uh, so I think I think what we're gonna what we what we see is your large incumbent businesses they they incorporated they you know companies they might have equity that's publicly traded um, there's an agreement amongst nice people who founded those businesses and the shareholders that that's that's the way they were formed and that's the way they're done and if you want to own a piece in it, a piece of it you've got to own it through the JSC or the NASDAQ or whatever um, and they're not really going to change. They're not going to change that. And and it's the same goes for for other companies that are kind of incorporated in a in a traditional manner, you know. Um, whereas it's going to be hard for them to sort of tokenize their businesses and shareholding in the business. But what you're seeing is a lot of kind of crypto native, Ethereum native companies, companies in inverted commas, just releasing tokens to people who then get some kind of a governance right in the smart contract that sits on Ethereum and there's a process for voting, you know, on proposals that can be proposed by anyone, you know. Um, and so what I think is going to happen is that those kind of businesses, you know, that kind of early, it's early days for them. It's two, three years into this, very early days. But some of these businesses are going to be massive successes. Right. And... Um, 
they'll start to compete and displace the traditional businesses that we're all familiar with today. But it's going to be a process that takes time, you know, mm. where the old businesses are kind of. You have. It sounds like you've got you have a very like comp- complementary um, um, view on on ETH and Bitcoin, in the sense that you know, they serve different purposes. Um, I must admit, prior to like DeFi. I was skeptical of what ETH can really achieve because in 2017, we only really had crypto kitties mm. on, on ETH and that was it. Um, and even that got gas fees going really high. Mm. Um, but now with DeFi, I really see the use case for that and I, and I see the value in, in Ethereum. Um, do you see Ethereum eventually overtaking Bitcoin in terms of market cap? Do you, do you always see you know, Bitcoin fulfilling that store of value role that it's currently serving? I'm, I'm interested... Interested in hearing how you see that dynamic between the two as as classes play out, mm. in a sense. Yeah, so I think it's a great question. I think Bitcoin, Bitcoin, is is the sound digital money. You know, gold two point Gold two point does what gold does, but better. Mm. Um, but in order to do what gold does, but better, it it needs to be. In terms of, if you think of gold as just a natural element on the periodic table, it's very easy to identify and isolate and test in the lab. And, you know, this is gold and uh, it's very identifiable. Bitcoin is the same, but in a sort of code programmatic sense, you know. And it's and it's not very complex. And it doesn't contain the type of logic that another technology like Ethereum contains, which sets out to achieve something very different. You know, so I can, I think you can think of the difference in the two as, as Bitcoin is like a calculator, you know, a normal sort of old school calculator, not a calculator on your smartphone, like an old school hard button Mm -hmm. calculator that does very specific things. And that's all it does. And it does it well, but it does it really well. Like it, it does what it's intended to do. Um, and so the risk vectors around that technology is much lower, like much less can go wrong. Ethereum is very interesting because it sets out to achieve a whole lot more. And it's still in a process of evolution in order to execute on that vision. And that vision is have this, this world computer on top of which you can run any type of business logic, any type of code that you can imagine. These are known as smart contracts, you know, so you can execute code in the system you can't do that on bitcoin and so what ethereum is kind of doing is it becomes an execution layer for different types of agreements and bitcoin just can't do that so like on bitcoin guys are talking about yeah bitcoin can do all this stuff too well no it can't you can't deposit bitcoin into a smart contract on bitcoin itself in order to make that bitcoin do things that you would want it to do bitcoin as UTXOs, you know, transactions, that's all it does. It processes transactions between different wallets. In order to give it the the sort of smart contract scripting languages that Ethereum does, what the guys are doing is they're copying the EVM. They're taking the Ethereum virtual machine and plugging it onto Bitcoin as a kind of side chain where you have this federated peg of trusted people who will hang on to your Bitcoin 
while you mint a, essentially an ERC20 token into the sidechain. It is not the same thing. When I deposit Ether into a smart contract, it's native to the contract. It sits inside the contract. I've got programmatic currency there. <laughs> and so that's very different. And that's super exciting <laughs> to me. And, and like, it's a very interesting kind of macro idea that I've been developing in the last while is if you think about the credit system today, um, the bulk of loans in an economy from the banking system is collateralized by real estate. Okay. And if you think about real estate as an asset, I mean, it's most people's primary asset, you know, um, it's, it's not great for a bunch of reasons. I'll tell you why I'm saying this. It might be controversial for a few. Uh, even my colleagues are interesting. But, but let me explain my thinking around this. So the moment you build a property, like a house or a commercial building, from the moment it's in the ground, it starts to decay. Nature wants to basically tear that thing down. Plants want to grow. Weeds want to grow the wind, the rain, the, the temperature fluctuations all start to have a bearing on that building. It wants to essentially turn it back into dust. You know? So you have to constantly be reinvesting to maintain a piece of property. So it's very costly as an asset to hold, whereas Bitcoin, Ethereum, it kind of self-sustains and it's this pristine collateral asset. And I'm saying pristine because there's no entropy. There's no entropy. And um, obviously real estate we just spoke about, it's, it's like in decay constantly, so you have to be reinvesting. Okay, so that's the one thing. The second thing is real estate is, is extremely hard to value. Um, you know, you get, you'll get your valuation experts, they're never going to get perfectly right until the property actually sells. You know, so that's another thing. Um, Bitcoin, Ethereum, liquid, highly liquid markets globally, you know, trading every split second, you can, you can mark to market all the time. You know exactly what that collateral, that asset is worth. Um, another thing that's interesting is real estate is, is it's not fungible. One piece of real estate is not exchangeable for another piece. Um, ETH, Bitcoin, very much interchangeable between each other. They're fungible assets. Mm -hmm. Um, so those are some, some interesting thoughts. Um, and um, I mean, what else? What else is there? I think that kind of captures the gist of the differences. And then the other thing, of course, is to enforce your property right in real estate, there's so much lawmaking, you know, lawyers, conveyances, title deeds at a deeds office, governments, armies, police, all these things enforce your help to enforce your property rights in a certain piece of land. Okay. Bitcoin, Ether, you got the private key, it's yours. It's, it's almost like the purest form of property right. It's a bare instrument. Mm -hmm. Gold coin in my pocket type of thing. Yeah. I own this. This is mine. I can prove it. And then on top of it, so there's a big difference there in terms of just enforcing property rights. You got the private key, yeah, it's yours. Okay, we can all see that. Um. And then on the other hand is real estate is not programmatic. So, so you, can't, you can't stick a title deed into a smart contract and say, hey, rent out SVS room. You know, 
um, borrow against your room, borrow against um, you know something on the property specifically, not the whole thing, just something on the property. Whereas with ETH, <laughs> you can do precisely that. Um, and so it's this programmable asset. And so anyway, here's here's kind of all of that to say. Mm. I think what we're going to see happening over time is that ETH becomes the preferred collateral asset for credit agreements in the world. So in that, also with that, you're saying that it has a larger total addressable market than, than Bitcoin does. So do you mm-hmm. think then eventually we see a eclipsing in market I think so. terms? I think so. I think so. I think, uh, that's 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 my view. Um, I think ETH is going to be bigger, and I think as people start to understand the utility of it in this use case, like think about this too. The only thing we didn't discuss is like, you know, I own a house, yeah, in Joburg, and um, I go to America and say, hey, like J.P. Morgan, will you lend against this house, please? <laughs> Good luck to you. Mm. You know, not very portable. I can't take it with me. I got ETH. Country doesn't even come into it. You know, you're on the internet. You can, you can, you can use it as collateral to take out a loan against it. And so, I think as people start to understand this property of ETH, these properties of ETH, it becomes really big. And obviously, the thing that'll illustrate and give utility back to ETH. So, there's this positive feedback loop is these DeFi applications being built on top of the Ethereum blockchain. And obviously, to use these smart contracts on Ethereum, you need to own ETH to pay the gas fees, you know. So Yeah. So yeah, I'm 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 very bullish on ETH for those reasons. Bitcoin you just can't you can't do that. Do you think um Bitcoin then once an eclipsing in terms of market caps happen, you know, the the, the flippening, um does does Bitcoin lose uh, its store of value um property? Because in a sense then um you know Ethereum is is the, the the pristine collateral. Um, yeah, I, I guess what I'm saying is it's, that it's the pristi- programmable one. It's the programmable yeah. one as well. So Bitcoin is it's it's better than Ethereum in the sense that it's not changing. Ethereum is still undergoing change, which introduces risk. And so, if proof of stake in ETH two doesn't quite work out, it's hard to see how this plays out the way that I was describing it. You know. So you've got to have a good understanding of the developments underway. What is changing? What are the risks that you're facing? Whereas with Bitcoin, that change is not happening. Yeah. And so so there's a lot more certainty that Bitcoin is still going to be what it is today in five or ten years' time, you know, whereas ETH is changing. But I think that's where ETH is also exciting and why I think the mania that we're still going into is going to be massive. Because my experience also is like when I, when I demo these DeFi applications to people in traditional finance, they get it immediately. Mm. If I show Bitcoin these arguments, oh, well, but you don't need another currency and these are the problems with Bitcoin and, yeah. you know, all, all the arguments, you know, regulations, you know, all that stuff. Show Ethereum, you don't even have to talk about ETH really. You just show the applications and the guys are like, okay, yeah, there's, there's something going on here. And so I think what we probably will still see is is your sort of tradfi um, guy who's a stockbroker or asset manager or banker, you know, all these guys are going to start understanding applications on top of Ethereum and they're going to get very excited about it. 
they'll get carried away. A lot of capital is probably going to come in, and you'll have you'll have a proper boom bust again. You know, um, but it's going to be different to the last cycle because the last cycle was driven by ICOs, which was just a specific application of Ethereum technology. Now the application of the technology is something else. It's DeFi, and people are they're going to have a mania and a bubble around that. And then in five years' time, you're going to have a different application, most likely, and it'll probably be more sophisticated DeFi interacting with Web3 yeah. that'll drive the next kind of mania and bubble. Yeah. So I think as we adopt this new technology, as the use cases kind of are discovered, you're going to have manias and a lot of excitement, bubble, pops, builds up again slowly, massive bubble, pops, but the trend is to the top right of the graph, you know. Do you think we, we still move in four-year um, cycles you know, around the halving, or do you think that eventually decouples um, these mania cycles? Yeah, I mean, it still looks like it. Uh, eventually, I think it it will decouple, but um, you also won't get around cycles entirely. There'll always be cycles, but I think the amplitude will, will diminish. So, like... It won't get as out of control on the, both the upside and the, the the downside in terms of price and excitement. I think I think these technologies over time will stabilize tremendously as adoption grows and as the social contracts around them kind of harden, um, yeah. and that'll bring stability. I think. I mean, I think. You know, Bitcoin will probably be the most, the most stable and boring asset mm. ever mm. in like. 20 years time right it'll it'll be what, what gold is now it'll be yeah which is ironic because a lot of complaints that are here um mm. is that precisely skepticism is based on the volatility aspect um yeah and and also back to what you said earlier it's interesting that uh bitcoin is is often criticized because it's not tradable but it's like it doesn't really have to be, right? Mm. Um, it doesn't have to fulfill that function. I mean, gold isn't um, easily tradable. I mean, you need to incur a lot of expenses for security, for travel and, and storing and so forth. Mm. So, yeah. I mean, Bitcoin, I think what people also don't understand is like, I, need a, I don't need to spend my Bitcoin at pick and pay or willies to make it tradable. I need Bitcoin to store the value that I've accrued, you know, saved between now and a future date. That's what I wanted to do. I'm trading present value into the future. It's like an intertemporal trade, you know. That's what Bitcoin does. That's what it's designed to do. So the price is still volatile, yes, because it's a monetary startup, you know. Hello, like startups are volatile. Like the future is uncertain. And so with that uncertainty comes speculation and that drives the price cycles at the moment. But you cannot dilute a Bitcoin. If I have a Bitcoin now, the RAND value of that might fluctuate. But one Bitcoin is still 100 million sats and no one can change that. <laughs> it's very hard, impossible, I'm going to say, to change that. And that's going to be the same thing in 10 and 20 and 30 and 40 years' time. That's what it's designed to do. So as adoption grows, the price might jump around because also like from an economics perspective, it's the first asset in history with a perfectly inelastic supply curve, which means like if the price of Bitcoin tomorrow goes from where are we now, like 38, 40,000, price of Bitcoin tomorrow goes to 
$400,000. You can't mine more. It doesn't matter. <laughs> like the price of gold goes from 2000 where it is today and it goes to 200000 tomorrow. Promise you the mining will explode. People might even go to Mars to like find more, you know, and they start digging holes there. Um, and so gold still has, a, has an elastic supply curve to demand and to price. Bitcoin doesn't have that. And so at the moment, the price jumps around because demand's jumping around. But as demand stabilizes, the price of Bitcoin has become, is going to become so stable. And that's where the property of the, the store of value characteristic is going to become obvious to everyone. Right. Tian mm. and I agree that we won't talk about price too much in this um in the, in the podcast series, but I'm interested in, uh, because we've, we've spoken about the you know, t- total addressable market, um, you know, do, do you have a specific, you know, Bitcoin ETH price target? Do you believe in like the stock to flow models, for example? Um, how do you value Bitcoin and where do you see it going? Look, so I am, um, yeah, look, it's hard to know. And what's also gotten interesting is everybody's views are starting to almost like, become the same out there around yes. where the price is going. And so you're getting this very strong kind of herd behavior. And I think um, to sort of bring it back to what's happened in the last three weeks, uh, the last year, and then the kind of price crash that happened in the last three weeks of Bitcoin and ETH, um, is that I've, it, it almost feels like everybody started to have exactly the same expectation of where price was going. And the market was just teaching everyone a lesson. Laser eyes, 100K. Yeah. Like you guys all think you can just look at the charts and make money. The market's going to show you, you know. Uh, It's not that easy, you know. And I've seen some guys who, very early Bitcoiners, been shaken out. Their conviction has been tested by the sell-off. And thinking that the bear market's here. It's done. It's upon us now. Um, My sense is it's not. I still think... I think we still have legs in this rally in terms of where the price can go for Bitcoin. I mean, I don't, I don't know, you know, but it's. I think it's higher than today. Yeah. <laughs> for ETH, I think it's much higher than it is today in the cycle still. Um, where it's going over the longer term, I mean, the way I think about Bitcoin is I think it will it will be bigger than gold. I think when it takes out gold, it's going to start setting its sights on the bond market mm. as a, a real risk-free store of value. Yeah. And um, there are probably going to be some things happening in the bond market that will reinforce the capital outflow. We're probably going to move to a point where you have a crack-up boom and where more central bank stimulus and government bond purchases don't actually keep yields down, but they have the opposite effect. Right. And so there's going to be a massive search for something that's stable with no counterparty risk. I think Bitcoin does extremely well there. And so when you start to talk about the amount of value locked up in government bonds, it's a big market. It's a big market. And Bitcoin starts to take sight, set, set its sights on that. Obviously, that asset class basically um, backs the value of fiat, essentially. And the two go kind of hand in hand. Um, and what that would mean is the the sort of Bitcoin value or gold value of fiat currencies are going to go down rapidly. Mm-hmm. And so you get this massive re-rating in terms of Bitcoin's value relative to these asset classes. How high can the price go? 
it can go high. It can go really, really high. It can go much higher than anyone expects right now. Yeah. And, um, and, and I think it's a similar thing for ETH, and it's going to be very interesting to see how the two assets kind of interplay and, yeah. and, and complement each other, which I think will, will happen as well. Um, I think there'll probably be innovations to make um, Bitcoin's use on top of Ethereum as an execution layer uh, less reliant on intermediaries, which it is right now. So in other words, to use Bitcoin on Ethereum, you've got to basically tokenize it and record a Bitcoin on Ethereum. But how it happens at the moment is you'll give your Bitcoin to a trusted intermediary who will then mint the token onto Ethereum. And then you have wrapped Bitcoin or you know, running on Ethereum's rails, so to speak. I think there's probably going to be innovations and cool stuff that get invented to make Bitcoin less more trustless on Ethereum, you know, so that it works well. Um, and then the, I think it's super exciting to see then how Ether how Bitcoin works and whether it competes with ETH and, you know, all these kinds of things. But, um, you know, so I think of this in terms of like a big S adoption curve and new, new technologies that are, um, you know, technological revolutions take on average 50 years to become fully diffused in society. So... The internet was first being spun up in the 60s. It took 50 years before most people were really connected to the internet through applications like Facebook and you know, all this stuff. Um, other technological revolutions like the internal combustion engine, you know, all this kind of, it takes, it takes 50 years on average. And, and I think it's the same with this technology. It's so fundamental in the way that it changes how ledgers work that it's going to take a long time. And, and we're only 10 years into this. I think this has another 30 years to go. And so I don't see this as a, as a short-term in-and-out trade. No. Some guys can do well, but a lot of guys, most guys are going to actually get burnt mm. trying to trade this market because it's wild. It's, 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 it is a wild market, you know. I mean, when you look at the fluctuations of price, I mean, 70% down in a week on ETH and some of these DeFi assets. I mean, it's, you got to know what you're getting involved in. But again, startup technologies, volatile. Um, and so I'm thinking about this in terms of like, we've got another 30 years to go here yeah, in terms of adoption. Mm -hmm. That's the view that I take. And to your question, where's it going in terms of price? I think the value of these networks are going to be exponentially higher than they are today. Yeah. Oh, and, and what is interesting to me is, uh, uh, you, you spoke about the internet again. Uh, in the 1960s, the pool of people that were firstly aware of, of this technology being crafted uh, was very limited. Uh, I think you mentioned the military. Uh, what we see today is we see uh, it's not completely like that. Uh, we There's a lot of awareness. Um, and I think relatively widespread awareness so Esvius and I spoke once and he spoke of a, a generational wealth transfer and I think I kind of agree with him is that uh, you know people like yourself uh, being if you speak about a 30 year time frame and you on the scene already um, I think that's uh, that's quite a significant opportunity it's massive I mean it's you don't see opportunities like this 
it's, it's yeah. I mean, and that's why there's obviously excitement, a lot of excitement. And the other interesting point about this is um, that technological revolutions obviously build on what came before it. So the technological revolution of the internet and the way that it changed communications is being leveraged, obviously, to, to make this technology work. So what that means is like in the early internet, you didn't have uh, very sophisticated online chat rooms that could reach the mass market where they, could, where they could learn about the internet. But now they've built that. They built that. You know, it's it's built out, and everybody's now got access to all this information through the prior technological revolution. So you can go on YouTube or Twitter and follow people leveraging the old technological revolution's rails in order to get up to speed on this one. And so that's why you know there's a lot of buzz, there's a lot of hype. It drives the mania, and it creates little echo chambers and all sorts. All of those dynamics are a part of it. But yeah, it's awesome that if people want to learn about this stuff now. Bitcoin and Ethereum, the information is all there. It's so accessible. Yeah, I mean, the, the interaction is is uh, quite interesting. I mean, Web 2, Web 3. Um, I mean, there weren't chat rooms. Or, or you didn't have social media back uh, in the early two, 2000s or 90s. Uh, I think a lot of what we see with uh, uh, cryptocurrencies and, and the development of Web 3 protocols um you are probably owing to you know the, the stimulus in conversation and information sharing that you saw with the advent of of social media you spoke about twitter uh, earlier so uh, i think that's very interesting um but yeah it has been a wonderful uh, conversation i don't know if you if wanted to uh maybe ask something else esfia um i yeah. think uh, the note being on um outlook without that even giving a price that, that Chris gave is a, a, gr- a great way to, to end the podcast. Yeah, and I think it's certainly not the last conversation we'll have. Um, so thank you very much for joining us. Thanks. Uh, it's been really insightful. Thanks, guys. Good chatting to you. Thanks for tuning into the Plan B podcast. A quick reminder that the ideas expressed by the hosts or guests during the show are for informational and entertainment purposes only. Nothing contained in this episode constitutes financial legal, or tax advice, and nor should any opinions be construed as solicitations or inducements to make a financial investment. Do your own research.